passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Again, good morning. Uh, so excited that you are here with us, uh, and I uh, hope you're enjoying the long three-day weekend uh, as you celebrate Memorial Day and whatever that looks like. God has been good to us and actually given us some good weather, at least yesterday, uh, so hopefully you are able to enjoy, enjoy the outside. If you are new with us and you're a guest with us, I want to extend a special welcome and uh, greeting to you guys uh, today. Right now, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians, and it's actually uh, it's called Who Am I? And we're looking at what the work of Christ on the cross has done for us in our identity and how it changes who we are. And as we've been working our way through this book, we've seen that God's unfailing love has chosen us and has adopted us as his sons and daughters. That God has given us the indescribable gift of his Holy Spirit and dwells within us now. We've also seen that, that God has done the unfathomable. He has raised us from the dead to bring us salvation. And now we are seated with him in the heavenly places, far above rule, all rule and authority and power and dominion. And that really talks about the foundation of our, our, what we've been studying the last couple of weeks. Is we've been looking at what it really means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about what it looks to be filled with the Holy Spirit and asking ourselves the question, of if God himself really lives within me, if God himself dwells in me, then how should I live differently? And we've been looking at, a couple weeks ago, we looked at marriage and began this conversation on what marriage looks like when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and next week, we're actually going to be looking at what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a child, and how, that, how our interactions with our, uh, with our family, uh, they, they are different now that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it also... Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at employee-employer relationships and how that is affected by f- being filled with the Holy Spirit. But two weeks ago, we looked at marriage. Uh, we looked at what a wife was called to do to be the, the wife that God was calling her to be in marriage. And we saw that the most important thing a woman could do in her marriage was to submit herself in all things to her husband. And this was a way of portraying Christ to her husband as an act of self-sacrifice in every single thing that she does. It's really important for us to understand what we talked about last week, so we're going to just talk about that a little bit more this morning, just mention one or two things. Uh, first, if you look at your sermon notes, you'll see that it actually, uh, it, this, this morning's sermon is called The Parable of Marriage Part 2. And that's because a couple weeks ago we looked at Part 1, we looked at the, the role of women in marriage, and the role of the wife, and this really builds off of that. And it lays the foundation for what we're going to be talking about this morning. What we, what we mentioned last time we were together was that the most important thing for a wife to do and was, as I said earlier, to submit herself, or submit herself in uh, the marriage relationship. But we looked at the most important thing, the, the purpose that God gave us marriage for. And that purpose that God gave us marriage for was ultimately for us to come into conflict with our own selfishness and our own sinfulness. You see, God has given us marriage as a good thing for many different reasons, but the ultimate purpose that he has given us, marriage, is for us to come into conflict with our own selfish sinfulness. See, each and every one of us, we have a tendency to look after ourselves first and foremost. We tend to put ourselves first and then probably second, and then if we're really generous, then we put other people third. But in a marriage, if if you've been married, you, you know that that doesn't work very long. It can't succeed if you're only focused on yourself. And that's why God has given us 
marriage is an opportunity for us to come face to face with our own sinfulness and to wrestle through that. See, each and every one of us is given the opportunity to either flee, to throw up the white flag and say, this is too hard, I'm going to give up. Or to see this opportunity to grow closer to him in all that we do. This morning, we're going to be talking, like I said, about the husband's role in marriage. And uh, this is the way that the husband grows closer to Jesus. This is how the husband really comes into conflict with his own sinfulness. And what we're going to see is that it's different than the way that the wife comes into conflict with her own selfishness. Maybe uh, it sounds a little uh, easy for me to say because it sounds like I've won the genetic lottery. I'm the man, and I don't have to submit in all things. And so how is it that, that the husband is supposed to grow in holiness compared to the way the wife does? And what we're going to see in our text this morning, I'm just going to lay it out here right at the very beginning, is that the husband, husbands are called to die to self as an act of self-sacrifice and as an act of love for their wives, just as Christ loved the church. See, each and every one of us who is in marriage has been given a divine responsibility to help your partner grow closer to Jesus. And the way that the husband does that is by dying to self, by sacrificing themselves in love for their wives. We're going to be looking at this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to see it has really three different parts. First, we're going to be looking at the template that God lays out there and how we are supposed to follow his model, the model of Christ. Then we're actually going to look at how uh, when we love our wives, we're actually loving ourselves. And then finally, we're going to look at how this is God's ultimate and original plan for marriage. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. If you don't have a Bible, the, the scripture will actually be printed on the screen behind me. And if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, would you come see me after the service? We'd love to get a Bible in your hands uh, to give you God's word. Uh, no strings attached. We just want to make sure that you have that and that you are able to encounter God in that way. So find me after the service and we'll be sure to get uh, God's word into your hands. So uh, please follow along with me as I read aloud here, Ephesians 5, uh, 20, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, our first section here, right off the bat, it tells us that Christ's love for the church provides the perfect, perfect template for us and for a husband's love for his wife. Today, if I were to tell men to love their wives, it would really not be that big of a shock. After all, it's kind of second nature that you should be loving to, towards your spouse. But in Paul's day... This is completely and utterly countercultural. This is found in what is called a household code. It's a list of different directions given to different people of the household and how they are supposed to interact with one another. And in all of these different household codes that people would write, not one of them ever said that the husband was supposed to love their wife. It said many times that the wife was supposed to respect their husband, but never that the husband was supposed to love their wife. So this is a very countercultural thing that Paul is telling us right here this morning. As I said, each and every one of us, it, it doesn't make that much, uh, it's not that big of a deal to us to love our wives. After all, it's second nature to us. But uh, if we look at this a little more, we, we begin to realize that love is defined very differently by different people. We all know that we should be loving towards our spouses, but what exactly does that love look like? For some people, love is actually defined more by Hollywood. And it's this passionate, uh, sometimes scandalous attraction between two people that cannot be denied. 
for other people, maybe we define love as this sort of, this good feeling that we have towards someone else. And so if, if that's the case, and what Paul is telling us here this morning is that we should have favorable affections for our wives, which is a really good idea, but at the end of the day, we can't really control that. I think Paul recognizes that. Paul recognizes that we have different understandings of what love is. And so he gives us an example. He gives us a concrete example to point to and says, if you want to love your wife, love her in this way. And he points to Jesus and how Jesus loves the church. If you think that you are doing a good enough of a job of loving your wife, if you think that your wife should actually be happy because she's married to you and not to Joe Blow down the street, stop comparing yourself to Joe. Start comparing yourself to Christ, to Christ in the way that he loves his church. So what does it look like to love the way Christ loves us? Well, we could spend the rest of our time uh, on earth, honestly, looking at the love of God and what that really looks like. But I just want to look at two different areas this morning of God's love for us. And the first of those is God's love for the church. Christ's love for the church is covenantal. Christ's love for the church is covenantal. That might sound like we're jumping off into the deep end of the theological pool, because after all, what is a covenant? Well, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, covenants were basically just treaties that people would make, uh, that different parties would make between them. So you would have covenants that would be made between two different nations, and they would make a treaty to not go to war against each other. You would have covenants made between two different people about how they would uh, interact with one another. And you also had covenants that people would make with their uh, gods. That doesn't give us a lot of help in understanding what God's covenant with the church is like and what a husband's covenant with their wife is supposed to look like. After all, I don't think that many of you men here, when you got married, stood up there and instead of saying your wedding vows, said, I am going to make a treaty with you instead of I do. As we look at the way that God covenants himself with his people in the New Testament and the Old Testament, we see several different things. God's covenant with his people is a covenant of love. In fact, in the Old Testament, he makes a number of covenants with his people, but in the New Testament, he gives them a new covenant. And this new covenant is actually what we celebrate each month when we celebrate communion. Uh, That's why we talk about uh, the new covenant that Christ made in his blood. And there's a very big difference between the new covenant and the New Testament and the old covenants that God would make uh, in the previous times in the Old Testament. For, For large part, In the Old Testament, God's covenants with his people were conditional. Meaning basically that uh, as long as they held up their end of the bargain, God was going to continue to hold up his. So if they remained faithful to him and followed his commandments, then he was going to bless them. If If David wanted to remain on the throne, then God would allow him to as long as he followed what God had wanted him to do. But in the New Testament, we see a radical change from a conditional covenant to an unconditional one. And that's really good news for us. See, the unconditional covenant that Christ has made in his own body with us now means that we are no longer responsible for holding up our end of the deal. If we fall short, if we screw up, which we all inevitably do, no matter how far gone we think we are, God's conditional or unconditional covenant is with us and shows his great love for us. So how does this apply to marriage? 
Well, it's, it's pretty straightforward that if our love for our wives is supposed to look like Christ's love for the church, then our covenant with our wives is unconditional as well. That means that no matter how many times your wife screws up, whether it's once or if it's a million times, you remain steadfast to her. It reminds that no matter how often she may hurt you, that you passionately pursue her goodness, her, the things that are good for her, in your love for her. If you have time this week, I encourage you to read the book of Hosea. Hosea is an Old Testament book, and it's about a prophet named Hosea. Surprise, surprise. And Hosea is actually told by God that he is supposed to go marry a prostitute. And so he goes and marries a prostitute, and he says, you know what, you're going to stick with this woman for as long as, as you are alive, because you are going to live out my relationship with the church. So when she goes and uh, is unfaithful to you, you remain steadfast to her. You remain loving to her. This is a sign of the ways that I show my love for you and for my people in the midst of your unfaithfulness and your spiritual idolatry for me. Our love for our wives must be covenantal. Covenantal love also means that a love, the love that a husband has for the wife must be redemptive. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the role of women in marriage, we mentioned that uh, it was on the man's responsibility to restore the relationship with his bride whenever there was a problem, whenever there was a brokenness in that relationship. See, just as Christ was the one who came to earth to restore the relationship, to, uh, to heal that relationship with his people, the church, so also it is the husband's responsibility, no matter who is the one who is at fault, who is supposed to restore the relationship with his bride. Christ's love is covenantal, and that means that it is redemptive. I also want to just have you look one more thing, verse 26 here. Christ's covenantal love for the church is covenantal, or excuse me, is sanctifying. See, in, in verse 26, it talks about being washed with the water of the word. In that passage, it's really referring to the fact that Christ not only saves us, Christ not only gives us new life, but he continues to make us holy in him. In the same way, it's the husband's responsibility to show his love to his wife by helping her grow in her holiness. See, husband and wife should not just be two different Christians who live together, but have completely opposite silos of their spirituality. One of the ways that the husband loves his wife covenantally is to care about her growth in holiness. So Christ's love is covenantal, but Christ's love is also sacrificial. Christ's love is also sacrificial. The moment where Christ showed the most love for his bride was also the moment where it cost him the most. See, most of us here, uh, we probably won't die for our wives someday. We live in a relatively safe city, in a relatively safe state, in a relatively safe nation. But I think the sad reality is, is that uh, many of us would probably rather die once physically for our wives than, than we are willing to die spiritually each and every day to ourselves for the good of our wives. I love this one quote uh, from a Christian artist who says that, honestly, if love doesn't hurt, you're probably not loving hard enough. Christ's love is sacrificial for us, and our love for our wives must be sacrificial for them. 
So what does that look like? Well, first, it means that your love must be provisionary. You must be someone who provides for your wife. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a bad husband if your, wor- your wife works outside of the home. It doesn't mean that you're a bad husband if your wife even makes more money than you do when you work outside of the home. But it means that you should be willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary to provide for your family material in a material way. But more than that, more than just talking about physical possessions, this is really referring to spiritual provision. Several years ago, when Crystal and I were dating, I was uh, getting ready to propose to her. And so I uh, made that long journey to her parents' house to go talk with her dad. And uh, actually, I lived in uh, Chicago at the time, and her dad lived in Grinnell. And so I was on the way there, and for this entire five-hour trip, I basically thought of basically every single way that this conversation could go wrong. And one of the things that I kept thinking of and kept focusing and coming back to was, how am I going to provide for Crystal? You see, at that time, I was a full-time student in seminary, and I worked about 20 hours a week in addition to, to all my classes, scrubbing toilets. But if Crystal didn't make more money than I did, then we were not going to make it financially. We were just not going to make it. As I was thinking about this, as I was praying about this, I remember God revealing to me, he said, you know, the most important thing that you can do is to provide spiritually. Husbands, you are called to provide for your wives spiritually. That means that you might have to sacrifice some of your me time to invest into your wife, to build her up. That might mean that you need to sacrifice some of your sleep in order to pray with her and to encourage her in her faith. Frankly, for some of us, that might mean that you need to get your butt in gear and start growing spiritually yourself so that way you can actually provide for her. Christ's sacrificial love for his wife is provisionary, and our sacrificial love for our wives must be, uh, must be provisionary as well. Another thing that we see when it comes to uh, sacrificial love is that sacrificial love is active. I think we have a, a really bad understanding of what love is, and we think of it as a noun. Love isn't a noun. Love is a verb. It's something that we do. It's not something that we have or that we feel. Andy Stanley is one of the pastors of one of the largest churches in the United States. And a couple years ago, he was going through a series on marriage. And as he was talking about self-sacrificial love that the husband should show to his wife, he just looks at everyone in his congregation and he says, make love. And there's this really awkward pause like mine right there. Make love a verb. He wants everyone in his church to make the, the, the transition from thinking of love as something that we feel, something that we have, to thinking of it as something that we do. And if we make that transition, if we begin to think of love as a verb, then we're on the right track. We're beginning to understand what it means to truly love our wives. You see, sacrificial love is active, meaning that in the midst of the times when we don't feel like loving our wives, and we don't have those affections for her, it's when we can still love them and make the greatest sacrifice for them. After all, what's more sacrificial? Someone who loves their wives out of a great, or who cleans the dishes after a great sense of affection for their wives, or someone who is at the end of their rope, who is so tired that they just want to go to bed and do their own thing, and yet they decide that they're going to serve their wife anyway. We are sacrificial in our love, not when there are feelings, but often in spite of those feelings being there. That's why Paul can tell us to love our wives. See, we don't know how much affection Christ had for his church, 
but we know that he went to the cross. We know that his love was an active love, and we can do the same thing. We can't stir up affections for our wives, but we can love them anyway by serving them and doing what God has called us to do as Christian men. So that's the first section here, that the the love that we have, the love we have for our wives, is really to follow the template that Christ sets for us. Let's continue reading here in Ephesians 5, 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The second section here is that we see that when men love their wives... They're really just loving themselves. See, all of this is rooted in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 tells us the story of the first marriage between two people. It's the first marriage in human history. It's between Adam and Eve. It takes place before the creation. What we see in that passage is that God says that when the two people, when Adam and Eve, they get married, they join together and they become one flesh. Become one flesh, meaning that they're one unit, that God sees them together, that they're intricately linked together, and there's no longer two people, but now just one. That doesn't mean that they lose their individual characteristics, but rather that God sees them as a unit. That's what Paul is referring to here when he says that when you love your wife, you're really just loving yourself. You're pouring out your love on your own flesh because you two are so intricately connected. So when we love our wives, we're really loving ourselves. That may sound a little weird, a little confusing, and frankly, it sounds a little bit selfish. After all, at the very beginning, didn't I just say that the reason God gave us marriage was for us to come into conflict with our own sinfulness, our own selfishness, and now I'm saying that selfishness is actually a good motivation for loving our wives? Well, what gives there? Well, we have to understand that a healthy love of self is not contradictory to self-sacrificial love for our wives. By God's grace, actually, it can be a motivation for loving our wives. I want to give an example, and this example is made famous by John Piper, a pastor in the Twin Cities. Uh, So let's say one day I decide that I want to go buy Crystal some flowers. And so I go out to Dell's, uh, buy a dozen roses. I think that Holly can maybe get me a discount, but it doesn't work out that way. And so I just pay anyway, get get my flowers. And I come home, and I want to make this really dramatic. I want to make this really romantic. And so instead of just going into our house like I normally do, I stand outside and I ring the doorbell. And then I realize we don't have a doorbell, so I knock the door. And, and then Crystal comes to the door. She's really confused because why on earth wouldn't I just come into the house? And so she opens the door with this really confused look. And before she can say anything, I shove the flowers into her hands and say, these are for you. I'm really good with words when it comes to romantic things. I just say, well, these are for you. And so she looks at them and she says, oh, Jordan, they're beautiful, but, but why? I look at her and I say, I don't know, Crystal. I just, I just couldn't help myself. I really wanted to get you some flowers. Now, Crystal could respond in one of two ways. She could respond in the way that we all know she would. If you know my wife, she could respond with a hug and a kiss and uh, some gratitude there and just say, thank you so much. Or... She could get really mad at the reason why I gave her flowers. She could throw them in my face and call me a selfish pig and slam the door. Because the reason that I gave her when she asked me why I was doing this was, I don't know, I just can't help myself. I wanted to. And if our love for our wives 
and our, self sac- our, our love for our wives and our love for ourselves, if those are mutually exclusive and they can't be the same thing, then I was acting on what I wanted, and I wasn't actually showing her love at all. I was only showing love to myself. You see, in God's gracious nature, most of the time, love for ourselves and love for our wives align. The times of self-sacrifice really aren't that hard because we want to do it. It doesn't mean that there aren't times where it's not going to hurt. That doesn't mean that there aren't times where it's not going to be sacrificial for us. But I think one of the dangers of that first section is after we get done reading that and hearing that we have to sacrifice for our wives, we can come away just saying, the only way that I can truly love my wife is if it just hurts. If it's just completely, utterly painful. I just need to grin and bear it if I'm going to truly love my wife the way that Christ loved the church. But what we see in Scripture is that That's not how God loved the church. God loving the church wasn't just an infinite exercise in painful sacrifice. What we see in Scripture is that God's love for the church was joyful adoration. And just like Christ had a joyful adoration in his sacrifice towards his wife, so also we as husbands can do the same thing. It's not a painful sacrifice, but it's a joyful one as we adore our wives. Does that mean that it's going to be easy all the time? Absolutely not. There might be days and weeks and sometimes even years where it just feels like pulling teeth, sacrificing for your wife. But that doesn't mean that we can't go through with it. Because the covenantal love of God for his church is the template for how we love our wives. I love the way one pastor puts it. He says, marriage vows are not a declaration of present love, but they're a mutually binding promise of future love. In other words, you've made the commitment, you've covenanted together, and that is what serves to build off of, to work towards loving your wife as you love yourself. We must endure in these times because our love for our wives can be love for ourselves. Let's continue looking here at the last section. Ephesians 5, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In this passage, in this section of this passage, we see that this self-sacrificial love was God's plan for marriage from the very beginning. I mentioned that, I mentioned Genesis chapter 2 earlier, and this is actually a quote from Genesis chapter 2, the, first, the very first marriage in human history. And what we see is that this marriage takes place as a part of creation, it takes place even before the fall. And so God has instituted this way of self-sacrificial love for the husband from the very beginning. He's meant it for his good, he's meant it for his wife's good, and he's meant it for the good of their families. This self-sacrificial love is a part of the way that God has set everything up. Genesis chapter 2 is really the foundation for everything that the Bible teaches us about marriage. Because I mentioned it's the very first marriage in the Bible. 
And what we see is that it gives us a couple principles on what marriage should look like. And Pastor Kirk calls this, these principles leave, cleave, and conceive. These are the three parts of Genesis chapter 2. First, the husband is called to leave their wife, or their, their spouse, or goodness, I'm struggling here, their parents, not the other two, forget that. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's called to leave their parents and focus on building a new family with their spouse. If, any, if you talk to anyone who has been married before, it won't be that long before they say, yeah, marriage is a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of learning. And there's a large, big learning curve in marriage. Take two people from different backgrounds and you bring them together. There's going to be some differences there. Crystal and I come from vastly similar backgrounds even from what occupations our parents have to what church we grew up in. And yet when we got married, very, very different expectations. And so when you leave your parents to form this new family with your spouse, it's an act of self-denial. You're not following the pattern that your parents set up. You're not following even the pattern that you think is the best. You are serving your wife in the way that you know is best for your one-of-a-kind, unique bride. You leave behind your parents. Second, you cleave to your wife. As we mentioned earlier, the talk about this one-flesh union. You join together as one unit with your wife. And as you are one unit, you forge a new marriage with them, focused wholly on how you can do things for your wife's good. And finally, this conceive part. The husband is supposed to self-sacrificially love their wives in sexual union as well. It is the most intimate form of a relationship between a man and a woman. And a guy, the man is supposed to love his wife fully and self-sacrificially in that as well. In this passage, you might have noticed that Paul keeps switching back and forth between talking about the church and, the, and Christ and talking about wives and their husbands. It seems like just as soon as you figure out that he's really referring to husbands and wives, he says something about, I'm saying this is talking about Jesus in the church. And just when you start to figure out, oh, he must be talking about Jesus in the church, he says, in conclusion, husbands love your wives. It seems like it's a very scatterbrained approach to all of this. But what, is, what seems to be scattered thought, I think, is a really an intentional connection between these two relationships. You see, marriage is a good thing. It's given to us by God as a very good thing. But at the end of the day, it isn't the most important relationship that we can have. It's the most important relationship that we can have between a man and a woman, but it is not the most important relationship and that's encouragement for many of us here today who may be single, maybe have been single for a long time, maybe for those who come from broken marriages, because marriages are only temporary. At the end of the day, they point to our union with Christ, which will one day supersede all of our marriages. Marriage, at the end of the day, points to Jesus, points to his love for the church. And so, men, the most important thing that you can do for your wives is to love them self-sacrificially by dying to yourself, following the example of Christ's love for the church. I want to close with just two examples of what this looks like, uh, two different stories from uh, different men with vastly different endings. Uh, first is about this guy named Robert Pierce. I don't know if you know of Robert Pierce, but he's the founder of World Vision. 
How many of you guys have heard of World Vision? World Vision, for those of you who don't know, is a faith-based humanitarian aid uh, that's actually helped millions of people across the globe. Robert Pierce formed this, uh, this charity back in the 50s and 60s, I believe. And while he was forming it, he spent up to over eight months a year abroad, building relationships, providing help for those who are in need. And when asked about how much time he spent away from his family, he just said, I'm taking care of God's little children, little sheep, all across the globe. He can take care of my little ones at home. One time he was in Southeast Asia, and one of his daughters attempted suicide. His wife flew back from their trip to Southeast Asia, but Robert Pierce stayed there. While she was in the hospital, uh, she committed, she attempted suicide again, and she succeeded a second time. And after that, Robert Pierce was never the same. He had an emotional breakdown. Everything that he had done was in shambles in his eyes. See, as, as men, we have a tendency to think that the best and most important way that we can make an impact in the lives or in this world is by focusing on those outside of our families. Focusing on what we can do to build a better world. And when we do that, we neglect the most important calling that God has given us. The most significant calling that God has given us. And that is to take care of our wives, to love them self-sacrificially. And in doing that, to take care of our families. In contrast, there's this guy named Robertson McQuilkin. Robertson McQuilkin used to be a missionary in Japan. Uh, used to be the president of a large seminary here in the United States. He's an author, a theologian, an ethicist. Uh, just a, a standout guy. And while he was the president of this seminary in the South, his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and he had a decision that he had to make. He could institutionalize her and continue to focus on the ministry that God had given him and, and serving in all these different roles, or he could decide to quit all of those things, to sacrifice them all, and focus on how he was going to serve and love his wife self-sacrificially. And so what he did was he decided to give it all up, to love and serve his wife. When he was asked about how he made such a great, large sacrifice, he said it was really, that, it was really pretty easy. The decision was made 40 years ago when I had committed myself to her, when I had covenanted to love her and serve her and to die to myself daily for her. In contrast to Robert Pierce, who focused on the things out there rather than on his own family and on the calling that God had given him to love and serve his wife, Robertson McQuilkin chose to love and serve his wife. And the, the story of how spiritually mature and the, the work that his children are doing for the kingdom is so encouraging to hear. Husbands, the most important thing that you can do for your wife, for your children, for the kingdom of God, is to love your wife self-sacrificially. Today in the United States, we're having a crisis of manhood. We think that to be a man means to reject authority, to be free from everything, to not have a commitment, to build up our own power base, and to look after ourselves. But to do that is really just to be enslaved to our own selfishness. What is authentic manhood? 
What does it mean to actually be a husband? It means to die to yourself each and every day to love and serve your wife. Knowing that God's spirit dwells within you, empowering you to make that decision. Will it be easy? No. But it's the calling that God has given each and every one of us who are married men. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that even as we fail in our love for you, your love remains steadfast and firm and good. And God, we pray that you would help us to love those who are around us in the same way. God, for the husbands here, that you would help them to love their wives self-sacrificially. To love their wives, wives in a way that points people to you. God, we pray for your blessing on us as we go forth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.